I have the privilege of taking groups of school students out hiking each year, and uh, there's a certain spot where um, the hill is hard and it's towards the end of the second day, and their legs are weary and their tummies are growling, and of course when you're hiking, food's pretty basic, it's just sort of dried pasta and things like that. And uh, you can almost pick it at this certain spot on this hill every time. They'll start to say, oh, gee, I'd love some KFC. Oh, I'd kill for a roast dinner. I just want a cold Coke. What have you got for dinner? Oh, we've just got sort of crackers and tuna. Oh, I can't wait to get a pie. Oh, yeah, I'd love a pie. And on they go. You can sort of pick it. You just know that this is going to happen every time there. But I guess the truth is, in our society, we're not really ever starving hungry, aren't we? We know that there's people around the world and uh, even within Australia who face that kind of thing. But there are times you can feel desperately hungry. Times you can feel desperately hungry. And the Bible passage today describes, sorry, in a real sense, what it must have been like to be desperately hungry. Desperately hungry. And, uh, well, I think we'll just get into the Bible passage and uh, we'll have a look and see what happens. Um, It tells how God stepped in once again to save people from a critical situation for those who are visiting this morning Stephen and lovely to see you but to put you in the context of course we've been going through the book of second kings and looking at um, miracles uh, that Elijah performed through the power of God and what God was revealing about himself and his character to the people of those times so um, Jess was talking with us last week and we finished at second kings 623 starting today at second kings 624 Some time later, however, King Ben-Hadad of Aram mustered his entire army and besieged Samaria. As a result, there was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver and a cup of dove's dung sold for five pieces of silver. Have you ever been that hungry? I wonder. Just out of curiosity donkey's head it was a forbidden thing in the Jewish culture to eat donkeys so they were going against Jewish culture and law in order to survive some commentaries say that dove's dung wasn't actually dove's dung but it was a plant or a weed called that but either way it doesn't sound very nice does it I guess you think what will I have for tea tonight toss a coin heads or tails (laughs) one day The king of Israel was walking along the wall of the city. A woman called to him, Please help me, my lord. He answered, If the lord doesn't help you, what can I do? I have neither food from the threshing floor nor wine from the press to give you. But the king asked, What is the matter? She replied, This woman came to me. Come on, let's eat your son today and we will eat my son tomorrow. How desperate must you be? So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, kill your son so we can eat him. But she has hidden her son. That is absolute desperation, isn't it? It just shows how uh, the situation was within that city. They weren't just hungry, they were, they were dying of hunger. When the king heard this, he tore his clothes in despair. And as the king walked along the wall... The people could see that he was wearing burlap under his robe next to his skin. 
May God strike me and even kill me if I don't separate Elisha's head from his shoulders this very day the king vowed. Elisha was sitting in his house with the elders of Israel when the king sent a messenger to summon him. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, A murderer has been sent to cut off my head. When he arrives, shut the door and keep him out. We will soon hear his master's steps following him. While Elisha was saying this, the messenger arrived. And the king said, All this misery is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And into chapter 7. Elisha replied, Listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. By this time tomorrow, in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will cost only one piece of silver. And twelve quarts of barley will cost only one piece of silver. The officer assisting the king said to the man of God, that couldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. But Elisha replied, you will see it happen with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat any of it. Now there were four men with leprosy sitting at the entrance of the city gates. Why should we sit here waiting to die? They asked each other. We will starve if we stay here. But with the famine in the city, we will starve if we go back there. So we might as well go out and send surrender to the Aramean army. If they let us live, so much the better. But if they kill us, well, we would have died anyway. So at twilight, they set out for the camp of the Arameans. But when they came to the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the clatter of speeding chariots and the galloping of horses and the sounds of a great army approaching. The king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian armies to attack us, they cried to one another. So they panicked and ran into the night, abandoning their tents, horses, donkeys, and everything else as they fled for their lives. When the lepers arrived at the edge of the camp, they went into one tent after the other, eating and drinking wine, and carried off silver and gold and clothing and hid it. Finally they said to each other, This is not right. This is a day of good news, and if we aren't sharing it with anyone, sorry, and we aren't sharing it with anyone, if we wait until the morning, some calamity will certainly fall upon us. Come, let's go back and tell the people at the palace. So they went back to the city and told the gatekeepers what had happened. We went out to the Aramanian camp, they said, and no one was there. The horses and donkeys were tethered, and the tents were all in order, but there wasn't a single person around. Then the gatekeepers shouted the news to the people in the palace. The king got out of bed in the middle of the night and told his officers, I know what has happened. The Arameans know we are starving. So they've left their camp and hidden in the fields. They're expecting us to leave the city and then they will take us alive and capture the city. One of his officers replied, We'd better send out scouts to check this out. Let them take five of the remaining horses. If something happens to them, it would be no worse than if they stay here and die with the rest of us. So two chariots with horses were prepared, and the king sent scouts to see what had happened to the Aramean army. They went all the way to the Jordan River, following a trail of clothing and equipment that the Arameans had left away, sorry, thrown away in their mad rush to escape. The scouts returned and told the king about it. Then the people of Samaria rushed out and plundered the Aramean camp. 
So it was true that six quarts of choice flour were sold that day for one piece of silver, and twelve quarts of barley grain were sold for one piece of silver, just as the Lord had promised. The king appointed his officer to control the traffic at the gate, but he was knocked down and trampled to death as the people rushed out. So everything happened exactly as the man of God, that's Elisha, had predicted when the king came to his house. The man of God had said to the king, by this time tomorrow in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will cost one piece of silver and 12 quarts of barley grain will cost one piece of silver. The king's officer had replied, that couldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. And the man of God had said, you will see it happen with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat any of it. And so it was, for the people had trampled him to death at the gate. A siege was a common way of attacking a fortified city such as Samaria. It was a, a military blockade where the enemy would find a strategic position and they would camp there and block any food coming into the city, anyone coming out of the city. Now the word siege actually comes from Latin and it means to sit. To sit. So all the enemy had to do was find a strategic position, cause a blockade, sit and wait. Now sometimes an army might speed up the process by assaulting the city as well and uh, trying to attack when the people who live in the city were feeling weak. Now I'm not sure how long this siege lasted, the Bible doesn't tell us, but just out of interest, um, about 120 years later, Samaria actually was succumbed or overcome uh, in a siege that lasted for three years. But the longest such recorded siege was uh, some years after that, and it was 29 years long. And can you imagine the enemy camping outside for 29 years, just blocking things from coming in and out while the people slowly die on the inside? Anyone here 29-ish? Yeah, yeah Darren, thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine someone who's around 29 all their life all they've ever known would have been hunger and desperation and lack of food and lack of water but I found this passage puzzling from the very first verse that says Sometimes later, sometime later the king Aram mustered his entire army and besieged Samaria because when Jess was speaking last week, the very last verse that she read to us, verse 23, this was after Elisha and the Israelites had shown kindness to the Syrian army. Verse 23 says, So the king made a great feast for them, sent them home to their master. After that, the Aramene, sorry, Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. So in one verse it says they stayed away from the land of Israel. And then the next verse, it says they raided again. And I'm thinking, well, what's going on here? What's going on? And verse 23 talks about a band of raiders. Verse 24 talks about the entire army. So not only are they still raiding Israel, but they're stepping it up a notch. Maybe between those two verses, there was a number of years and they forgot the kindness that uh, the king of Israel and Elisha had shown to them. And that memory had gone. I don't know, but I thought, why would God allow the army to grow and to attack the people of God? Why would that continue? The answer lies back in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, 
Um, this is God speaking to Moses and giving the laws and commands to the people. And in 28 verses 1 to 6, the heading in uh, my Bible is the blessings of obedience. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all his commands I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the world. You'll experience all the blessings if you obey the Lord. Your towns will be filled, sorry, your towns and fields will be blessed. Your children and crops will be blessed. The offsprings of your herds and flocks will be blessed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be blessed. Wherever you go, whatever you do will be blessed. That's the blessing of obedience to God. Later in that chapter, it talks about disobedience. Verse 15, if you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and do not obey all the commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overwhelm you. Your towns and your fields will be cursed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be cursed. Your children and crops will be cursed. The offspring of your herds and flocks will be cursed. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you'll be cursed. And that chapter continues until we get to verse 53. The siege and terrible distress of the enemy's attack will be so severe that you will eat the flesh of your own sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you. So what's happening in Samaria was forecast some hundreds of years beforehand when God clearly told the people about the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. And getting to the point of cannibalism in order to survive is a result of disobedience. The people were disobedient. And so God allowed the Syrian army to continue to attack the Israelites, to wake them up, to give them a bit of a kick in the pants and say, people, things are not right. You need to turn back to God, to the Lord your God. And what was the disobedience? As I read on, I found it was idol worship. I don't mean lazy worship, I mean worshipping idols. That it was part of the culture of the day to worship idols. The first commandment, love the Lord your God, you shall have no other God before me. The second commandment, you shall not make idols. So the predicament that they were in and continued to be in was brought about by the consequences of disobedience. And God's trying to give them a wake-up call and get their attention back on him again. Now, I'm not suggesting that every bad thing that happens in our life is a direct consequence of disobedience. If you're parked at traffic lights, red light, waiting to go, and someone comes over a hill and runs up the back, I'm not suggesting it's because you were disobedient. If you happen to sprain your ankle while you're walking through a shopping mall, it's not because you were disobedient. If you catch the flu or find that a friendship is strained and all these things that happen in our lives, it's not necessarily because of disobedience. But I do believe that the Bible tells us that sin and suffering and sickness and hardship entered the world through disobedience. They have their roots in the disobedience of mankind. If a negative series of events is occurring in your life, perhaps God is trying to get your attention and give you a wake-up call and get you to focus back on him again. Come to him and simply ask him to show you what that's all about. Maybe there's something in your life that needs to be confessed or handed over to God, surrendered to him. Get, get uh, back on track again. So I believe that disobedience does have a consequence. It does have a consequence. 
And it's not just shown in this story, but in many other stories in the Old and New Testaments. But when hard time comes and we're in desperate situations, people respond in different kinds of ways. And I want to look at some of the characters in this story now to see their responses. The first response was the response of the king, a response of hopelessness. Why do you ask me for help, he said to the lady. God's not even helping us. What can I possibly do? I have food. I don't have food. I don't have wine. I can't do a thing. So there's this real sense of this leader, this person who was spiritually in charge of the people of Israel, just having total hopelessness in the situation. He had no plan, no purpose, no direction. There was no indication of him turning to God or causing the people to seek God and find the root cause of the problem. Now, an interesting point is this king was the son of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And they were um, rulers of Israel in the prophet Elijah's time, just before Elisha. And Jezebel was a very wicked person. Uh, who was a foreigner, who um, was very seductive. Um, she'd caught the king's eye, the king had married her, and she'd brought into Israel a lot of idols and a worship of, uh, of different things like that. And so uh, he was their son, and he hadn't really cleaned out all that idol worship that his parents had started. He had allowed that to continue. The king made a half-hearted attempt of wearing sackcloth. In the Bible verse, it's called burlap. And uh, as he was walking across the wall and he was talking to these ladies, hearing about their sons, he tore his clothes in despair and the people saw underneath his clothes he had burlap or sackcloth. Now that was a sign of repentance, of humbly coming before God and seeking him. But the interesting thing was the king was wearing it under his clothes so that nobody knew. So it was almost like a half-hearted attempt God, I'll I'll sort of put this sackcloth on. Maybe that'll do the job and show that I'm repenting of whatever it is. I don't really know because I haven't asked you about it. But I'll put my robes on over the top so no one can really see. And so it was a surprise for the people to see that. Um, If you were a royal person or a person in charge and you wore sackcloth, you did it so people know the king is on his knees. The king is repenting. The king is calling us all to come before God again. That was that symbol. But in our story, the king is just making a half-hearted attempt. We're reminded in Revelation that God wants all or nothing. The Bible tells us that God says, are you hot or are you cold? I would prefer prefer you to be hot, prefer you to be cold. Don't be lukewarm. That's detestable to me. And we had a lukewarm king who was half for God, half for not. But people, if we stand for God, we have to stand for him wholeheartedly. We can't try and hide something under our royal robes and get through the day hoping that it might work. We have to be all for God or not. So his sense of hopelessness made him ineffective as a leader. He was weak. He was wishy-washy. But the crazy thing was, he lived through that time of Elisha. He had seen miracles. He'd heard about the wonders that Elisha had done. And he knew the power and the might of God. But even so, his disobedience... His idol worship caused him to feel hopeless. He was like a victim. Hopelessness does that. Can't do anything. No use trying. What's the point? Everything bad always happens to me. Not even God could save me. But 
be reminded this morning that no matter how hopeless a situation is, we can always turn to God. We can always turn to God. The Bible reminds us we are more than conquerors, overcomers in this world through the blood of Jesus Christ. Not just conquerors, we are more than conquerors. There can never be a situation that is so hopeless that we just don't know what to do. The second response of the king was to blame someone. To blame. He decided that all of this was the fault of the man of God. And he said, I'm going to have his head. It's his fault that this is all happening. Interesting to note that beheading was not an acceptable Jewish practice. And so once again, he's taking matters into his own hands. He's rising above the law to uh, look after things himself. And isn't it funny? The blame was being placed on the only man who had a right relationship with God. Elijah stood for God, unquestionably. And he was the man that copped the blame when things went poorly. Blaming others comes out of a lack of taking responsibility for our own actions. That king should have thought, I am king, I am responsible for these people. God, what is it? What do I need to do? What do I need to clean out of the kingdom in order to get your favour again? But it's much easier to pass things off to other people and to blame them. Right back at the start of creation, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, Adam blamed Eve, said, God, it was her, it was the woman Actually, the woman that you made, <laughs> passed the buck a little bit further, Eve, well, it was the serpent. Neither of them said, I have sinned. I have done the wrong thing. And because of the hopelessness, because of the blame, the king was blinded to the impact that he could have had in turning the situation around. The third response in those desperate times, hopelessness, blaming someone else, was desperate times call for desperate measures, justifying what we clearly know to be wrong. There's no question about cannibalism. There's no question that that's something that is so wrong. Each life that is created is precious to God. And to take a life for that purpose is so wrong. But yet, desperate times, people justify that. Well, it's either me or that person. I can survive if I do such and such. Now, when things are going well, that thought wouldn't even enter a mind. But when things are going tough, sometimes we justify things that we wouldn't normally do as a viable alternative. Perhaps we wouldn't normally lie or steal or take something. Perhaps we wouldn't normally have that attitude or take a certain action. But because things get a little bit desperate, we think, well, it's okay to do it this time. We have to stand for what is right, no matter how tough the situation gets. And if we don't, we're not trusting God. We're going against his rules and his commands and all the things that we know can be right, no, to be right, sorry, just because we can't trust him, we can't wait any longer. So we take things into our own hands. And if you think about it, we can pretty much justify whatever we want. But is it God's way? The fourth response was cynicism and disbelief. The king's guard, who ended up being trampled to death in the rush to get the food, he'd responded when Elijah said, God's going to provide things for you, 
by saying this wouldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. I don't think he had any idea what he was saying. All the resources of God, he was saying, couldn't possibly save us. Boy, was he wrong with that. I guess in a way it was similar to the two thieves on the cross, either side of Jesus. One of them was cynical and had disbelief. In Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals hanging behind, beside Jesus scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself oh, and us too while you're at it. The other protested, don't you fear God? Even when you've been sentenced to die, we deserve to die for our crimes. This man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you're coming to your kingdom. And Jesus said, I assure you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Cynicism, unbelief, questions the truthfulness of God's promises. Unbelief says, this is a new thing that can't be true. Unbelief says, well, this is a sudden thing. God can't do that. Unbelief says there's no way to accomplish this. Unbelief says there's only one way that God works and this isn't the way. Unbelief says even if God was to do something, it probably wouldn't be enough. Belief says my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in heaven. The windows of heaven are open. My God will provide all your needs according to his riches in heaven. Cynicism and disbelief loses everything. The officer was trampled to death. One of the thieves on the cross was promised to be in paradise with God. We assume the other. That wasn't the case. Cynicism and disbelief loses everything. Belief in God reaps reward. And the fifth response to this difficult time was action. The action of the lepers. Now the lepers, of course, were the lowest of the low, outcasts of society. The belief was that leprosy was contagious, and so the lepers, you, you're banished. And so they're actually outside the city gates, between the army that was besieging them and the city itself. And they decided, well, if we stay here, we're going to die. If we could get back into the city, there's no food, we're going to die. So we might as well go to the army and if we live, we live. If we die, we die. And in a sense, they were putting their lives in the providence of God. The Bible doesn't say God led them to do this. But they had no other option. And they realized, well, I give up my life. I put my life into the providence of God. And let's see what happened. But we do know that they are men of integrity. Because when they found the army had gone and there was plenty of food, they uh, realised they had to go and tell people then and there. They couldn't hang on to that for themselves. So they did have integrity. But you know what the amazing thing is? When they got to the army, the army had already been defeated. They didn't have to fight them. They didn't have to draw swords and battle them and scare them off and keep all the food for themselves. The victory had been won. The victory had already been won. And it was only that they were prepared to give up their life that salvation came to the city. Isn't that meaningful? The Bible tells us in John 12, Jesus is speaking, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, 
it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. And there's a perfect example. The lepers were prepared to give up their lives and out of that sense of dying or death that potentially could have come, salvation came. Sounds a lot like the story of Jesus on the cross too, doesn't it? Out of his willingness to give up his life, to put his life into God's hands, we have salvation. The battle's won. And let's keep that in mind when we're facing desperate times and not sure what to do. Maybe we just simply need to go to God and say, God, once more I lay down my life, my hopes, my dreams, my visions, my plans, all of the things that are wrapped up in my life, I lay them at your feet. God, I know that the battle has been won. You've already scattered the enemy. I just need to be prepared to give my life to you and enjoy salvation. Now the army was confused because they heard the sounds of what they thought were approaching armies and they scattered. And obviously that sound came along quickly because they didn't even have time to gather up their weapons or anything at all and their weapons and clothing were just scattered as they raced through the forest to get away. In the story last week, do you remember what confused the army as they were wanting to capture Elisha? They were, anyone remembered? Blinded. So in the story last week, the army were blinded. The story this week, they're confused by sounds. That tells me that unless we're following God, our senses and our judgment are not going to be accurate. Just like the army, their senses, their sight, their hearing, were just totally confused by God. We need to follow God in order to be clear-headed and to make proper judgments, to have our eyes opened in a spiritual sense, to have our ears opened and tuned to him in a spiritual sense. And the sixth response in all of this, and the last response, is the response of God. His faithfulness and his gift of salvation. Time and time again, the people of Israel turned from him and were disobedient. Time and time again, he rescued them. How faithful is God? How good is God? And how encouraging is that to us as well? That in our times of difficulty, despair, God will not give up on us. He will come to rescue us. Through his mercy, through his power, through the faithful man Elisha, God was able to help the people. But do you realize what's happening? It's through Elisha every time. It's through Elisha, through his right relationship with God. And it can't last forever. What God was wanting were the people's hearts to turn to him. And he'd save them through Elisha's faith, give them another chance. They get into difficulty, same thing again. Save them through Elisha's faith, give them another chance. We cannot rely on the faith of those around us. We cannot rely on the faith of one good person, one righteous person. We have to turn to God ourselves. That's where it comes to. And I have no doubt in my mind that had the nation, as a nation, turned to God as individuals in that nation, then those raids would have stopped. And the blessings that are promised in Deuteronomy would have been for them. You know what the irony in all of this is that a city and walls are built for protection. They're built strong to, to um, 
to uh, be, be safe during an attack. But what the people had built to save them and protect them became their prison during the siege. They couldn't leave, they couldn't get out, they couldn't get the food and the water that they needed to survive because of their disobedience. And I believe the same can be true of us. What we build in our lives to protect us and to keep us safe, things that we value and treasure, if we're not doing that in obedience to God and for his purpose, it can become a prison to us and a place where we can be stuck and starving and thirsting and getting desperate. And all we need to do is cry out to God because the battle has already been won. Don't ever die saying God can't do it. God can do it. And he does it again and again. I want to finish with another verse from Deuteronomy. After those passages of the blessings that can come in living in obedience, what can happen when we're living in disobedience, it goes on and it gives us a choice. Deuteronomy chapter 30, 11 and six, uh, to 16. This command I'm giving you today is not too difficult for you and it's not beyond your reach. Isn't that encouraging? God's not asking us to do things that we can't do. It is not kept in heaven so distant that you must ask, who will go up to heaven and bring it down so we can hear and obey? It is not kept beyond the sea so far away that you must ask, who will cross the sea to bring it to us so we can hear and obey? No, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart so you can obey it. Now listen, today I'm giving you a choice between life and death, between obedience and disobedience, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and keep his commands, decrees and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you and the land you're about to enter and occupy. We have a choice. We have a choice. Choose life. Choose prosperity. Choose salvation. Choose blessing. Or live in disobedience. Do our own thing. And find that there is a consequence to that that will put us in desperate situations. Me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of salvation, a God who will come to rescue us time and time again. And Lord, I pray that if we find ourselves in situations that are desperate, that we won't feel hopeless or blame others or feel uh, cynical, that we won't take desperate measures and justify things that we know in our hearts are wrong. Lord, may we take action to simply lay our lives down before you Seek your will and look for your salvation. God, I thank you that you don't give up on us, that your action in all of this is just to be faithful time and time again. Lord, we love you and we declare today that we want to serve you, to be obedient to you in all that we do. Amen.